Hi, this is Eddie Deason. You're listening to Breaking the Fourth Wall. I was Mandark in Dexter's Laboratory. Ha 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 ha. You are listening to Breaking the Fourth Wall on Realm of the Mist Entertainment. Just when you thought it was safe to get back in the water, guys, let me let me start off by saying happy Fourth of July, but belated Fourth of July for those uh, here. I am Christopher Stolle. Welcome to Breaking the Fourth Wall, and this time around, I'm extra excited. If you can't tell by the fact that I'm flubbing my own intro. The reason I'm flubbing it is you have to understand there was a five-year-old little boy from Philadelphia that at one time got sat down to watch this movie that in his personal opinion to this day is still the greatest horror movie ever. And this movie made a five-year-old little boy so scared of water that he stopped taking baths and started taking showers. And that movie is called Jaws. And to put it into perspective, that same movie I watched a day ago, and it still creeps the shit out of me. It is literally the greatest movie, horror movie ever made. Uh, it's celebrating its 45th anniversary, and there's some great things coming. And one of the things that are coming is this gentleman that I have with me right now. We're gonna, he's got a long history with the uh, franchise, a long history with Jaws, and a lot of cool things coming. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Dave Bigelow. Dave, how you doing today? Great. How are you doing? Uh, better as long as I don't take a bath. No, <laughs> <laughs> no I seriously. Yeah, you, you know you weren't alone in that situation. I, I seriously did. When I was five years old and I first saw that movie, I was scared Jaws would come up the drain and eat me. That's literally what made me start taking showers instead of baths. <laughs> yeah, it's that water line. It's just seeing the water line anywhere that you can't see beneath the surface. You know, that's what, that's what make, makes Jaws work, I think, is that that sense there's a barrier that you can't see beyond and he's in there and he's big and he's going to kill you if he gets his, you know, teeth into you. No. So, um, yeah, it's incredible. Um, but yeah, it's uh, you weren't the only kid. <laughs> now the, 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 obviously, like I said, you had a long history with, uh, with Jaws. Why don't you go ahead and let everybody know uh, what I mean by that? Like how you got started with this, with this legendary franchise. Certainly. Um, and it was just complete luck. Um, my family moved to Martha's Vineyard in the 70s and um, my parents were hippies, um, you know, bell bottom jeans and, uh, um, you know, uh, encouraged me as a little boy, a five year old boy on Martha's Vineyard to hitchhike where I wanted to go. Yeah. And that was my freedom. I, I had my own taxi system for me as a five year old. It was called anybody would stop for my thumb. <laughs> and um, it was great. It was a freedom that was, you know, the 70s, like that's, People would think that's incredibly ridiculous today to let that happen. Um, and the reality is, is that um, that's today. And we're all very cognizant of the fact that the world's a dangerous place. But I had no fear of the world whatsoever at that age on the vineyard. It was a, it was a paradise. And right. if you know anything about Martha's Vineyard, it's really not like the area surrounding it. You know, the neighboring mainland is, you know, New England, Boston people, you know, kind of rough and tumble, but loyal and and uh and other people rhode island and so forth the vineyard is like a caribbean version of that area it's like and it, you're here in an hour and a half sometimes uh, i go down tomorrow i'll be leaving for the island tomorrow for a little nice. vacation after I've been working for a while so 
but I was uh, on the vineyard at that time and uh, Jaws came to town in 1974 and I was five years old. Um, and uh, it's funny, you mentioned the intro as a five-year-old boy being afraid of the water. Well, I was five and I was put in the water for one of the scenes. So it was extra terrifying in some ways, but really it was just cold. Um, Cause that's a famous story about how the, the water was cold. It was early, it was early in the season. It wasn't summer when they did those scenes. Um, and there's a reason, reason it's the tr tourism. They had to be there and do, do the beach scenes before the tourism picked up. So I was in a drama class, uh, a five-year-old in kindergarten, and Lee Fierro, who plays Mrs. Kintner, was the actual drama teacher there at Oak Bluffs Elementary School. Um, and Lee recently passed away of coronavirus, unfortunately. And um, I uh, hadn't got, we, it's, I, I talked to friends who I work with on the project who said, you were there with Lee when you were five and she was totally, I was scared as hell and she was the comfort to me on the beach. Like I was by myself in a huge movie set and it was really weird and just intimidating. Cause I said, she goes, Oh, I'm shooting my scene and come on down. You know, she invited us in the drama class to go down to the beach. Okay. And um, I didn't know what to expect. I thought of a camera person with a light or whatever. It was like a five-year-old could imagine a movie was. And it was like 60 people all up and down that beach that were crew members with lights and, you know, audio going and like wardrobe and, it was a full movie set. So, um, you know, that's the thing about Jaws. It became this huge production, an independent, really feeling production, but it had all the tools. It had all the equipment mm -hmm. and equip. They eventually ran out of those resources when they got to the water and needed more. Um, but I was in the scene with Alex Kintner. Um, I was in the water for about six hours and, uh, you know, we got in and got out every time that, uh, Jeffrey Voorhees, who plays Alex Kintner, every time he's pushed up by the divers and then stuck back down into the pool of blood, well, they would shoot that and then they'd need to, need to reset. But the resetting took so long because the blood had to dissipate in the water. You couldn't have any more of the color. Right. So you just had this extra like 35, 45. I forget how long exactly it was. But you basically stuck around and waited. And so they did it, I think, four times is what I recall. Um, and, uh, and Jeffrey nailed it with that plunge down, finally, that they did. Um, <laughs> but uh, you don't see me that long. I'm not in the film long. I was there all day and I think I'm in seven frames basically. Um, so you see me briefly, um, but I had a bowl haircut and, uh, you know, I was uh, definitely an island kid, dark brown hair. Like you know, there's a lot of Portuguese people in Martha's Vineyard and, okay. and Italians. And so there's not a lot of blondes you'll find sometimes, but we're all basically, you know, kind of like that Anglo-Saxon mutt that you get out of the New England, you know, males. Um, <laughs> so uh, I didn't really, you know, I loved it. I thought it was great. And then that summer, the summer of 75 following, you know, they got it cut up pretty fast and distributed. Um, they finished, they wrapped production in September on Martha's Vineyard. And then October, November, they were back in LA shooting pickups, you know, and then they got to the scoring and finally they were ready by, it was May or no, it was June, uh, June 25th or June 20th, sorry, June 20th was the 45th anniversary of the film. So right. that's when they released. And so that summer, the, the Vineyard, uh, all the people who got to work on Jaws and the, who were in the film, because uh, I used a lot of people from the vineyard for a, a variety of different things. Um, the, um, they held this screening for the vineyarders, you know, premiere basically at the Island Theater in Oak Bluffs, where I would always see my movies there. Um, my most classic, like I saw Suspiria there. I saw The Spy Who Loved Me. I saw, you know, it was like the movie theater when I was a kid living on the vineyard that I would always go to. And they held it there at that theater, the Island Theater. And when people went in, they were expecting a movie that was going to be kind of like a monster movie. And, oh, the shark looked so fake when I saw it down by, you know, Shark City and Oak Bluffs. And 
So when we went into the movie and we're like within very short amount of time, like with Chrissy's death, we were like, oh my God, <laughs> this is unbelievable. Like as a five-year-old, I wasn't judging it as a film critic. I was like, I'm really scared immediately. <laughs> um, and yeah, and, but even knowing, seeing the places that I grew up and knowing where those things were shot, it still suspended my disbelief in a lot of ways. You know, the characters, the, the, the music, the, the shots, the way that it was shot and lensed by Michael Chapman. Um, there's so much in there that's really wonderfully done. So you didn't expect sort of this Hitchcockian thing. We expected Godzilla, like right. in a shark. You know, that's what we thought it was going to be a hokey, you know, it's in there and you see it and, it, you know, terrorizes the people, not the tension and suspense that you get out of like a Hitchcock pot boiler, you know, and for obviously reasons that are completely, you know, accidental, the shark didn't work. And there was a million and one other problems on the set of Jaws. And just to get in the can, a film, film that was finished, they thought was going to be a miracle. And right. they didn't just pull off a miracle with like finishing it. They told, they, they created the first blockbuster in history. And actually, I just heard the podcast from um, uh, Paul Shear, um, the Unspooled, which is the big podcast they do about movies, the top 100 AFI movies. And they were just effusive over Jaws. It's like, you know, I think it's in the 50s for like most, you know, biggest horror films. Right. Excuse me, or, or best films in America on the a AFI list. But they were like, this movie is so freaking layered and gorgeous and glorious in all ways. You know, that every viewing, if you're paying attention, you'll see something new in there, the okay. nuance that's in it. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I, I absolutely agree with that. I mean, you know, being, being a Star Wars fan, uh, obviously my first and foremost love is Star Wars, but I mean, I can't, I honestly could say that George Lucas and Steven Spielberg have written my life, my, my livelihood. Like, you know, everything I ever think about, I watched growing up was something Spielberg or Lucas had done, be it Willow, uh, Indiana Jones, Jaws, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Like, there is such a connection to each and every one of those types of films for me that, that just, you know, the man is a genius and it blew me away years and years later to discover that Jaws was actually a book by Peter Benchley. Cause when I first saw the movie, like I said, as a five-year-old kid, I had no idea there was a book about it. You know, all I know is that this, this thing scared the hell out of me. And then later on, as I grew up and like you said, you discover new things as I grew up and started discovering about the behind the scenes of film, and of course, discovering Jaws, discovering that part of the reason that Jaws worked so well was the shark didn't work. That's why he wasn't in three quarters of the movie, <laughs> you know, <laughs> because right. the, shark, the shark would, for, for lack of a better term, the shark mechanically was a failure. Um, but I think, you know, I think the concept of less is more is what really helped build Jaws. And, and like you said, there, there's so much more to it. Um, but neither here nor there. I'm not here to criti uh, critique the movie. We're here to talk, talk about your involvement with the movie. Um, sure, sure. One of the first, the, the first question I've got to ask you, especially since you knew uh, the actress who played Mrs. Kittner, I heard rumor and I don't, you know, not being a person who was on the film or anything else, I have no real way of confirming this. I heard that that scene where she confronts Brody, Roy Scheider, and she smacked him. And from what I heard that, wasn't pulled is that true? no that's true the um the story of roy scheider is uh particularly in that context roy was a golden globes boxer or golden gloves boxer golden globes award winner later but golden gloves boxer okay um and so as a uh, he had a tough 
leathery skin because he was a sun worshiper. Ultimately, it's why I think he passed because he had he worshipped the sun. Back in the 70s, they didn't have sun block. They had sun tan lotion that basically did the reverse. It was cooking oil for humans. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Roy, um, you know, I, I know uh, Chris Proffer, the, he was the production pilot of the, the Orca for the movie. And he was out there and he's like, every chance we got that Roy got to stop between takes, he's out there and sun himself on the front, on the barrels of the Orca. Oh, you know, yeah. like that would be his thing. So, um, but yes, that scene was actually, um, you know, she laid into him. He said, you can do it, do it for real. And Lee also was a trained uh, stage actor. So I think in some way she knew how to sort of lessen the blow with like having the hand pull back a little bit. It wasn't one of those hard, like, you know, keep it stiff on the way in. You can see there's a slap, but it's the, the wrist bends enough. So it's like, okay, I need to make the noise more than I need to push your face. Right. You know? um, but yeah, he definitely took the real slaps. And I, there was a couple of takes, uh, a number of takes. I, I think there's mythology about the fact that there's a lot of takes, like in the 20s. Like, why would you need that many of a slap? You don't need that many of a slap. You need that of like really tricky dialogue, I think. But, you know, getting a slap just right. He's not David Fincher. He was trying to move on a movie that he was like really behind on getting shot. Um, so, um, yes, that was a, a real hit. And he took it. And uh, the sound effect, I think it is a Foley effect. But the one recorded naturally was also really good. <laughs> well, see, that, that, that's what I had heard was that, uh, and again, no way of confirming but uh, the, the the way I heard it was that she caught him by accident, and that's the, what made it into the film. Like there was movie effect, movie effect, movie effect, and then the the real one is the one that wound up getting getting canned. Right. No. The uh, the the anecdote was definitely that Roy said, "Hit me. Don't worry. I've been a boxer, so you can do it." You know. But she knew how to do it because I think she must have done it before, and like because she was a New York actress, stage actress before she came to Martha's Vineyard. Um, so she was classically trained. Okay. Well, the, the other question I had from, from that first portion that I, I've got to dig into is the Alex Gittner death. Um, obviously, this, when, when you see it in film, you kind of see a little bit of the shark come up and grab Alex and pull him down. Uh, I'm not sure if that's practical or, or if that was later, you know, uh, digital enhancement for like the re-releases. Uh, I can't remember from when I saw it back on VHS if, if the shark was actually there. In the yeah, there's that's an op, that's not an optical effect. That's an actual. There was a prop shark in the water. There was a prop shark. Okay. Uh, yeah. I was going to ask you: Is a five-year-old little boy freezing his butt off in April doing this scene for six, seven hours? Uh, as cool as it was to to be on a movie set, did you see Bruce? And w what was your a five-year-old's reaction to seeing that shark? <laughs> what I think I saw was the tail section, but in reality, that wasn't the only time I saw Bruce. Bruce. The movie was on Martha's Vineyard for six months, remember? They showed up in late April, you know, May they started shooting, and, and um, it was September before they were off the island. So we had them a whole summer, and Shark City was, you know, literally a mile, straight mile walk from my house where they kept the sharks. Okay. Um, and eventually, uh, a gentleman uh, was appointed to security with a pistol to guard the sharks behind plywood that they put up because secrecy on the sharks was something, you know, the producers definitely felt like more people see it, take photos, it's going to like dispel the amount of like fear of this inanimate object once they see it in the film. So and a Christian science monitor person got in and took, out, took photos of Bruce when they weren't supposed to, that, that they told Joe Alves that they were. And there was a big, like, you know, they, they, everybody said, okay, that's it. We got to lock down these sharks. 
nobody should take pictures. We're going to put a guy with a gun outside the door. Um, <laughs> and uh, so that was the deal. Um, but uh, yeah, I saw the Bruce at that place before they really got the security nailed down and saw him. And it's actually a 25 foot shark. You know, it's not a small specimen. I was at the one that Greg Nicotero was um, restoring uh, last year okay. with Joe Alves. And we went to see it before they restored Junkyard Jaws. And it's a 25 foot long, you know, piece of art, basically. It's, it, it, it didn't move or anything. This was the one that was fully cast. But right. Greg was restoring that for uh, the, the Academy Museum. So it's an impressive thing. And as a five-year-old, I definitely was like, okay. That in its eyes are like, you know, the doll's eyes. They're definitely, they're dead. And they're, you know, it just feels like it's a soulless eating machine. Um, and I became afraid of the water, but mostly because I recognized moments that I saw in the camera, like in Jaws, I would remember shots. Like Brody looking out to the sea from under the bridge, Jaws Bridge in Oak Bluffs. I go to that bridge all the time, um, and people are always jumping off it now and call it Jaws Bridge. But that <laughs> shot of just you know his resolve and looking out there, I'd see that and it would remind me of the movie. And those, that's when I got afraid. Being in the water didn't scare me as much, but definitely seeing imagery from the film where I still lived was definitely oh, that's right, you know. Um, uh, this is, you know, and my, my imagination definitely was, I didn't think about the artifice of filmmaking in any way. I simply thought of it as, okay, that's the story. And the story in my head is a freaking nightmare. And I live in a place that those nightmares are based. <laughs> so um, it was, it, it was, it impressed upon me. But honestly, within two years, Star Wars came out. And now I had a whole new love affair of movies. You know, because Star Wars came out in 77. Mm -hmm. I was seven years old. Uh, sorry, six years old. No, uh, eight years old. And I saw that and I was like, okay, that's it. Jaws, now this, what is going on? I want to see more of this. And then you got Close Encounters and then you got Escape from New York. Like all these great films that that generation of filmmakers out of the studio system came and made. Um, George Lucas and him, John Landis, um, you know, other directors I feel like were part of that, especially right. in comedy and horror. That was really cool. So, um, yeah, I, uh, I, I thought the arrow was extremely special, you know? Well, obviously this, this, uh, this spurned a, a love affair to the, uh, to, to the fish, you know, to the idea. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's funny because I hadn't, I, I, I did it and then, um, you know, it started my love affair with media and entertainment. So I basically got into, in college, I was an English major, but I decided to get into editing, video editing. And this was like 1993, 94. So Avid was literally Avid editing systems, the nonlinear editing system that most people use in the media industry today for cutting professional, you know, picture and sound. But that's Pro Tools more. Um, but doing that, uh, that I learned that and worked for free on a film for a while. Uh, you just cut your teeth. You intern. You finally get a paid internship. You finally get like. And so now I've been doing it for about thirty years. And, um, you know, I've done all sorts of things. I've directed. I've worked. Uh, I had a company called. Uh, uh, G Matter that basically did uh, concert graphics for artists like uh, Lady Gaga. Um, uh, we did Guns N' Roses for a little while, their visual show, James Taylor um, and uh, uh, ZZ Top. We had a great roster of clients that we would do just video graphics for their live concert tours. And it was fun, but it was, you know, I was married at the time and was definitely um, on the road a lot and, you know, sleeping out of a suitcase can get really tiresome, and especially because the end of the tour we would be like working all night long in the in the rehearsal space just getting the video dialed in with the lighting designer right but i can't complain i enjoy the hell out of it and i got to see a lot of concerts and i was being paid to so that was a that was another really unique fun part of my career 
that was about six years long. Um, since then, I've been with WGBH in Boston. I'm part of the Outpost, and I'm a colorist and online editor there. Okay. So my role is to take an, a, a, a documentary, usually, for PBS, and uh, color correct it to look its best, uh, make all the footage, you know, if there's problems with the footage, I go and find better versions of the same footage, uh, or I treat it and I fix problems. I get, you know, everything to make that image look as good as we can possibly get it. You have the tools to, digitally to do now. Um, and I work with editors who do all the editing, creative storytelling. So by the time it gets to me, it's just make this story pretty now, you know? Um, and that's been really rewarding because I think that's a skill that, you know, a lot of people take for granted. Everything that you see on television, some, some colorist has made it all look consistent and also films. They're not shot to look the way they are. There's a color, you know, timer that gets involved and um, works with the director and the cinematographer to make very specific choices about what the color should be. Should it be warm? Should it be cool? Should it be bright? Should it be dark? Um, sometimes it's just making the footage like taking away problems. I get tons of video that's green, just so green, you know, and I'm constantly getting green footage. It's just has to do with the color balancing and the way cameras are set, but most of it comes in green, some of it yellow but in that same sort of spectrum um, uh, and, and needs contrast. But so anyway, that's what I've been up to. The truth is, is that this all leads me to remembering that I, um, I did have a love affair with movie making and I was working in television, um, but I met somebody at Frontline. One of the clients that I have is Frontline and we put uh, Frontline uh, shows on the air. Uh, I've got one next week. Um, and then uh, John Campopiano works there and he is an archivist for them. He is one of the biggest Jaws collectors in the country in terms of memorabilia. And he has a section of the Orca, the Orca 2's hull. He bought it from the, uh, the Murphys who, who ran the, held the boat. Oh, wow. And um, so he brought it to me. His introduction to me was, I have this book about Jaws. I have this here. Like he learned, when he learned that I was a, an extra in the film, he thought it was like, oh my God, I, I work with a collectible. Um, <laughs> you know, I kind of expected like weeks in our relationship as friends, you know, that I was going to be in a glass display case wearing the same shorts I did that day. I'm like, how much do you think I'm worth? And when are you going to let me have some water? You know, um, I have expected it to be like, just, just climb into the curio. It'll be okay. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, so anyway, but, um, that got me back on thinking about Jaws and remembering the stories of people and then learning more. I just started to research more about the making of the film. I love the film, but excuse me, don't get me wrong. The film is really well constructed. It has some flaws and I'm not going to, you know, people will tell you Jaws is totally perfect. There's a couple places that it's not absolutely perfect, but it's okay. You know, that you forgive for some things and it's just technical things that, you know, they, that, that was the best they could do at the time. If they had digital technology now, probably some of those things wouldn't be an issue anymore. Um, and that's what's great about Jaws too, the making of it. It was so analog, you know, the walkie talkies they were using for the first time, you know, shooting film, um, not being able to shoot at night because the cameras weren't sensitive. So everything was shot day for night. That was at night. All the orca night sequences were shot in the day. The cameras aren't sensitive enough to pick up uh, when you have moonlight, you can't get enough uh, media imagery out of it. So you actually shoot daytime in an overcast condition and then you color correct it to drop the brightness and make it bluer. And then that makes it, that crushes the blacks and creates this like, you know, moonlight glow of blue. Because the, the, the moon's more or less tungsten. The sun's daylight, but the moon's tungsten, which is a whole different color. It's a cooler color. Well, that's so, um, not to interrupt you, but that's interesting that you say that because I had heard, again, a rumor more than anything else, but I had heard the shooting star. The infamous shooting star was a legitimate phenomenon that happened during filming. It, 
CGI? Yeah. It, not CGI, but cell animation. It was, uh, you painted on, you basically painted on an optical effect. And oh. so that was still very uh, analog to basically, and I did it when I first started making films in college, there is a way to shoot a film and some filmmakers literally would just like, you know, take a little razor blade and scratch into the negative to create like a, a laser bolt between, you know, something. And so it is, it's a physical piece of media that you can do that with. Um, everybody thinks CGI is gonna be this tool that everybody uses to do whatever. Um, the only thing that Jaws has now since the release of the new Blu-ray and now the 4K DVD, the ultra high def, um, it's, they color corrected it and they took care of repair, they, they got rid of the dust they restored it, like they made it as beautiful as it could look, but they didn't change anything. They didn't composite anything, add any special effects. But the star, the shooting star is an absolute optically painted cell animation effect. Okay. And um, it's, uh, and Joe Alves shows, because if you go to Joe Alves storyboards, there's a storyboard with a shooting star in it with the orca in the background. So I don't think they waited all night for that star to show up to be in that storyboard. <laughs> Just just goes to show. Sometimes sometimes you, you you believe the illusion. I I literally grew up believing that they just got lucky and got that shot in the background, and uh, you know it was you know luck of the Irish, I guess you could say. And I mean, I, obviously, I used the wrong term with CGI. I, I meant that it was basically that it was phony or, or staged as opposed to being legit. You know. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but because uh, CGI didn't exist back then. But um, no, that, that, that's one of the things. That's why when you were saying that you color corrected to make it nighttime during a, a daytime overcast, I'm like, well, what about the shooting star? <laughs> right. What about the story yeah. of that thing coming out of nowhere? <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of, well, that's the thing. Once you, <clears throat> once you forensically break down the way Jaws was made, there are certain things that are impossible to have. Like if he shot in the day, there's no way you ever saw a shooting, shooting star. Um, so uh, there's a lot of myths about the making of the film that I find really interesting. And as I explored um, getting to know more about the background of the film and the production and more of the production, like what did the crew do? Not Spielberg, not the producers. I mean, there's some drama obviously there that, that everybody has heard in documentaries. There's the inner circle of Jaws right around the camera that the documentaries, like six of them have told the story of. The producers, Spielberg, the cinematographer, you know, the cameraman, um, uh, the actors, uh, you know, that whole circle, the editor coming to set or, Verna Fields actually was using a CB radio from her editing suite on Martha's Vineyard and ordering shots off the Orca. Like they're out there in the harbor and she's like, I need a left to right shark actually going to the sun. And you know, you guys are behind him and Quint's out at the end of the, the pulpit. And he's like, okay, we'll get it for you in an hour. You know, so right. um, that's really interesting. I think the real interesting story is going out from that and moving into the rest of the crew from the PAs, grips, um, you know, other people that, you know, Joe Alves, you know, production designer, because those are the people, you know, I was in the army and one thing in the army is you learn that, and everybody probably knows this in general, that officers, you know, command and sergeants actually do the job, you know, and, um, you know, the, the, the producers and the director and the cinematographer, like they were the officers, you know, I'm talking about the enlisted folks and the, you know, and the NCOs, the non-commissioned officers like Joe Alves, who are in there fighting for stuff all the time, and there's just great stories that nobody's heard because they've been so focused on the shark not working. That to me is what's really distracting is that you've got this thing where you said, the movie's great because it doesn't have that much shark and that was an accident. It's because the shark didn't work. And so there's all these sort of like maelstrom of things that go around that process, which has been done over and over and over. But I think to learn what the crew did to survive and some of them had a great time. 
Like they weren't struggling, but they made bank because they were being hired by Universal Pictures to do 16 hours a day, for basically six months straight. Right. Like, there was no stopping on that film. And, uh, you know, I know someone who on the vineyard, I, I'll, I'll visit him this weekend. It's the house that Jaws built. Like he, he built his house and moved into it after he finished Jaws because he had all this money from working on that film that whole time. Um, so it created foundations for people, which was really cool. Um, but the story, basically two years, I came up with this idea of creating a, this story called Making the Monster. And Making the Monster is the making of, making of the movie from the crew's point of view and doing a six-part documentary, or sorry, not documentary, docudrama format show. Okay. And a docudrama is basically, the easiest way I've been telling it to people, it's the Apollo 13 of the making of Jaws. It's the story about the actual people, but you, you see actors playing the roles and it's scripted, but it's true. It's trying to follow the, the actual stories to history. And so as part of this effort, I thought what I should do is start by interviewing as many Jaws people as I could that were actually on the movie. Right. And, um, and I took my own money. I said, uh, and, you know, and I worked for WGBH in Boston, so I have access to cameras and, and things. I, have a nice, I, I was able to get a beautiful 4K uh, C300 Canon camera with a great lens package. And I hired a crew and did it the right way. So we captured these interviews with Joe Alves, the production designer, Cal Accord, the, who was a special effects technician, uh, uh, Carl Gottlieb, who was the writer and appeared as Meadows in the film, um, Kevin Pike, who actually um, was a, a busboy uh, working in Egertown, and he met Joe Alves. Next thing you know, he's working on the movie. He goes on to make the Back to the Future car, the DeLorean. Like, oh, nice. He went from busboy to special effects you know, 75 to 85 was like, he was off to the races with uh, doing practical effects. And it created that. Had he not run into Joe Alves, he might still be busting tables. Well, Kevin, I wouldn't say that, but you know, <laughs> who knows where he'd be. Also makes you wonder what the uh, DeLorean would have looked like had he not been picked up by Joe Alves. <laughs> right. And I think that's what's interesting about happened, but yeah, I, I, I know it's crazy and it, it's, but they learned a lot on that picture. Everybody learned a lot. Even the ones who were veterans apparently learned a lot. You know, it was that kind of a special experience. So right. um, they all got wise with a lot of things. Um, so making the monsters began with these, like we captured all these interviews. Then I went to Martha's Vineyard, shot some more interviews with people who actually were part of the vineyard side of the story. And uh, they're really cool because they knew one woman I spoke to, Grace Conklin, was the front desk clerk at the Kelly House. And the Kelly House is where most of the crew of Jaws stayed, including actors like Richard Dreyfus and I think Scheider stayed in that hotel for a while. And so she was the front desk girl, cute little blonde that all the actors would flirt with and like try to get out on a date. Um, and she had great stories about what it was like to be there that whole summer, six months of them coming in and out past the front uh, door and where she was working. And they all became like, it, it became like a family, you know, because they, they, they didn't think they were going to be leaving. <laughs> after a while it just was going on and on they're like when are we ever going to leave this movie do you know no i don't know oh my god we're stuck here you know that kind of talk uh, and i think that's interesting to think about that people were prepared for a 55 day shoot and it turned into 159 right so you know it tripled on them um and then there was more to do in la and go to catalina island and do pickups so it was a long production um and uh you know i think you find you'll get that film in the can if you just keep shooting it. And that was Anakin Brown's mentality. Just keep shooting. No matter what the studio is saying about being over budget and being, you know, behind schedule, like let's keep shooting. As long as we keep showing them new footage, they'll see, okay, there's something coming out of this. We don't have to like suffer a bleed out that it's like just bad. 
Um, so what happened was uh, making the monster, I decided to, you know, try and explore slowly and do my, you know, continue to do my, my job as a colorist at WGBH and, and take a little time with it to think about the way it should go. And, but I knew I was going to need an orca. I knew that for the, to tell the story of the drama, you know, the Apollo 13 of Jaws, you need an orca. Um, it's the most emblematic to me. It's the, for Jaws. It's what the Millennium Falcon is to Star Wars. You know, the orca is the the badass's ship. You know, Han Solo is Quint, basically. That that is a fair assessment. I can't argue that point at all. <laughs> it is. I think that there there are parallels as, as like strong male characters in those kind of vessels. You know, it's funny because they were. You know, Lucas didn't. He had already written the role for Harrison Ford. But, um, you know, the, the, the real, the truth is, is that those two movies back to back kind of established like, you know, there's one of those characters that's like the, the, the late ladies love him and he's a rascal and whatever. And so that's Quint in his own way. He's not necessarily a ladies man, but he's definitely a rascal. Um, and he has the badass vehicle that, you know, everybody has to get on board to, and deal with his strong personality. Mm-hmm. You know, same kind of idea. Um, so uh, anyway, the making the monster, we shot a bunch of things. We went and did drone footage on Martha's Vineyard and captured all the locations. Um, and, uh, you know, it's been slowly percolating uh, on the development front because writing six episodes of television takes some time. And, you know, we still are, have a lot to get done in terms of development and, uh, you know, the budgeting phase of everything once you're breaking down what's going to happen in each episode. So, um, you know, it's a drawn out, drawn out process. However, I acquired a boat because I knew I was going to need an orca. Excuse me, I acquired it about 18 months ago thinking, well, eventually I will be on production in this television show. It's all going okay. And if not, I have a cool wooden boat, which didn't cost me a lot of money, actually. I found it, you know, on the North Shore of Massachusetts. Okay. Um, and it was, it's like a lot of these fishing boats that you see in this area. You know, finding the orca, you've got to look here where they found the original um, because of this Nova Scotia lobster boat style that we have. It's, you know, unique to us. Although I'm sure in the Pacific Northwest and other areas of the country, there's probably similar designs. They're utility boats, they're work boats, lobster boats and fishing boats and stuff like that. Right. So um, I acquired this boat and I realized that, you know, we were going to be taking some time. Obviously with COVID, uh, we were even further slowed down. So I thought, well, what can we do with this boat? And I started getting some ideas and um, I decided that I would engage this project that I'm currently right now just about to launch in a bigger way and can't talk about everything right now that is part of the whole picture. But what I can talk about is that um, we are creating, so we, we have a project called Return of the Orca and we are going to take this boat and we're going to convert it into the Orca 3. And the reason it's the Orca 3 is because the, the original Orca was the one obviously you see in the film and it's usually like, you know, going 12 knots and everybody's running around like crazy on the deck. The Orca 2 was the fiberglass version of the Orca made just for the sinking and rising of the, the sinking boat. Once Jaws jumps on that, that tail, on that fan tail, and breaks the transom, it's all Orca 2, basically, that you're seeing in the rest of that, that footage. Right. And Orca 2 would just, you know, and they had breakaway glass cabins. Joe built just cabins of the Orca that were wood and glass because you needed to have the shark break through something to go after Chief Brody. Mm-hmm. And um, and they had to shoot that multiple times, so they had three, and they luckily got everything that they needed by the time they destroyed the third set that they built. <laughs> but so anyway, the Orca 2, um, that was left on Martha's Vineyard. Uh, Lynn Murphy purchased that and bought from the Universal Studios, I think for a very small sum. Uh, he was instrumental on the film in many ways, and so was his wife, Susan. 
And so they got those boats as well as the garage sale, incidentally. The garage sale was actually the barge that was used as the production vessel where they had the huge hydraulic uh, system to operate the sharks. And there was like eight operators pulling levers up there. So they had the garage sale and they had the Orca too on this beach. And it was slowly being picked apart. And then finally it was just, they chopped it up because they were sick of people trespassing out there and taking parts. And uh, they actually used the Orca 2's hull. Um, like I said, my friend John has a section of it, but they used one by one inch squares of the hull for this book called Memories from Martha's Vineyard, which is a book by Jim Beller and Matt Taylor. And um, they wrote Memories from Martha's Vineyard and, and Spielberg actually wrote the foreword of that, uh, that book oh, wow. um, because he loved it so much. And it's really about the production. You know, it's, it's about when, what was shot where and how they solved techniques and design photos. And it's great. It's a great, you know, it's uh, the Jaws log is a great telling by Carl Gottlieb about what it was like to be in the inner circle of, you know, I don't see these as competing works. I see Jaws, Carl had something, like I said, in that inner circle around the camera, the closest people to it. And then everybody behind is what Matt and Jim's book really is. And what a lot of, and a lot of vineyarders. And that's what I want making the monster to do is create that story. I think that's going to be really interesting. Um, and like I said, we've already seen the Spielberg story and all that stuff plenty of times in docu. So um, we're taking this boat, we're gonna turn it into the Orca 3. And the idea is that we want to use it for a couple of different things. Um, when we have it built, the idea is to put it in the water um, and uh, basically use it for charity. We wanna give uh, some kids uh, in a camp called Camp Jabberwocky uh, the opportunity to go out and have a great boat ride uh, for free. We wouldn't charge the camp anything, it's a nonprofit. They're based on donations as well. And so I would love to, as a kid from the vineyard, kind of give back to a community that was, you know, I love, and I still love, but I was a kid and it was a different time. And, you know, we all think of our childhoods in different ways. Um, and I definitely, you know, have um, an interesting story with the vineyard, but I also had such rich memories of it. And I think it would be great to know that, you know, there's some other people enjoying the vineyard a little bit more um, who have some disadvantages in life and, and, you know, would love to be able to just, you know, do that for them. Um, the other part of the Orca 3, and this is something that's really exciting to announce, is that Wendy Benchley has come aboard with support through a group called Beneath the Waves, uh, run by Austin Gallagher, CEO. And their mission is basically of ocean research and preservation. It's a conservation nonprofit. Um, they will be, uh, they've agreed once the boat is in the water to stage research expeditions, and they will take care of the whole of that operation. We just provide the, the access with the boat. Um, Martha's Vineyard, as you may or may not know, has a growing great white population thanks to the seals that have now shown up in various places around the island. So um, I used to swim on the island without any fear for a long time. If I see a seal now when I go in, and I still swim, but if I see a seal, I am out of that water and I'm getting a cold beverage. It's not safe. It isn't. I mean, just because we haven't had a fatality, I, you know, I understand that. We had one fatality on the Cape in Wellfleet two years ago. I remember I was a Red Sox game and somebody said, Dave, somebody was killed by a great white out at Wellfleet. Um, and so um, that was really sad. He, he was a boogie boarder and uh, he was in, it wasn't very deep water or anything, but you know, they don't need very deep water to attack. Right. And it was dusk, you know, it was dusk, sun's going down. Um, and sun down, sun up, those are transition periods that sharks like to feed the most. Because I think they know, they're evolutionarily like programmed to know when our eyesight is changing to new lighting condition, it gets weaker. It's still it's struggling to catch up. Um, and so hunting at that time is just sort of what you do because you know your prey is going to be, um, you know, a little stunned, not able to really see anything accurately. So um, I think had he known that, 
had he known what was going on um, and that, that that was a particularly bad time to be body surfing, you know, middle of the day with the sun high probably was fine, you know, but um, that's the problem. Uh, education is the only means to get this problem underhand um, and, and not have other fatalities. And luckily, again, knock on wood, we haven't had a lot of any other fatalities. Um, but it's going to happen eventually. I think because of COVID, people aren't really in the water as much as they plan to be this summer. Um, but that will change. And, uh, you know, these, this shark population continues to grow. So I think the Orca 3 can be an extremely useful vessel to understand what's going on around Martha's Vineyard as it gets to be more of a great white territory and then can educate the public about habits they should encourage because there's no getting rid of these seals and there's no getting rid of these sharks. The seals draw in the sharks. It's a direct correlation. Mm -hmm. No seals, no sharks. And it's war what's warmer. They, thanks to climate change, the warmer the water's like seven to ten degrees warmer than it was, you know, sixty years ago. So as a result, you know, they like to feed in warmer water and they'll leave when it's cold, but who's going swimming when it's cold? So <laughs> we have a problem when we like to swim with sharks. And so. and let's let's be honest. I mean, uh I can't I can't help but see the irony here. What boat is better to go research great whites than the orca? It's yeah, you know what? What's a better vessel to pick up, uh, you know, um, uh, Chewbacca in, but uh, a Millennium Falcon? Exactly. You, know? like, <laughs> it, it, that, you don't it, send like, the limo for Chewbacca. You send the Falcon for Chewbacca. I mean, when I when I when I made my suggestion before before we went uh, before we went live, I was thinking just any sharks: lemon shark, bull shark, tiger shark, a dogfish. You know, I was just thinking that knowing that there are actual great whites around uh, Martha's Vineyard, of course, you've got to have the orca look them up. <laughs> yes, yes. It, it's time for a reckoning. The boat is back, boys. <laughs> oh, All right. Yeah, we're we're going to dress a guy up like Quint just in case the sharks saw the movie once. And they're like, oh, now it's on. Okay. Did, did you just read my mind? Because I was just about to ask, are you going to have somebody playing Quint? on the uh going when the orca goes out <laughs> i don't yeah i don't know it's it, yeah exactly They're, well listen if you're a fan of jaws and you know i obviously am you've confessed this the same to me i think that a lot of this stuff is really obvious when you start to play with it because we're putting the orca three in amity that's where it belongs in the world you know if somebody wanted to buy it for a million dollars and send it to lake como in italy i'd have to say can you just keep it here? <laughs> like, I'll sell you the boat, but could you keep it here? Because it belongs there. It belongs, you know, more, to, you know, I'd love it to be in Menemsha where they shot Quint Shack. Um, that's commercial only these days. So this vessel wouldn't really qualify for that necessarily. I think this needs to be probably in Edgartown Harbor um, where there were scenes shot with the orca. So that makes sense. Um, and it's also closer to where the sharks are out at Muskegon Island, which is off East Beach of Chappaquiddick. So, um, yeah, that would make a lot of sense doing it from Eggertown. But, um, yeah, I think the boat has a really important role it can play now. And I think we're all tired of bad news at the moment. I'd like to be part of some good news for a change. My whole group would like to be. We're excited about the fact that there's this benefit that it's going to have on people directly that'll be good because everybody's distressed of dealing with this virus and the politics and, you know, what's going on with our racial disparities. It's really, you know, it's like, my dad told me it's like 1968 all over again in some ways. A lot of the same things are going on. We're just not in a, like an act of war like Vietnam was, you know, but all the other stuff is kind of happening and it's, it's hard. Um, but I want to, uh, and I think we all want to see this project move forward in a way that actually feels like you are part of something that's bigger than just being a cool movie boat. 
you're part of something that's actually making people's lives more enjoyable, even if it's just for a day. And you're talking about helping save people from, you know, misunderstanding what sharks do around Martha's Vineyard by using it as a research and education vessel. And I, when I talked to Wendy eventually about this, I think the idea was, let's make this vessel that everybody knows about suddenly because it's this iconic movie vessel. But the story we're telling is not about how cool it is to reenact scenes from the movie. The story we're telling is we're going to take this thing and we're going to give, you know, researchers a platform to work from. And everybody will pay attention to the fact the orca is part of research now and not murder of a shark. Right. Because sharks are not evil. They, they do what they do because they're in the nature. It's like calling grizzly bears evil because they come across a camper and digest one once in a while. Mm-hmm. Um, they're doing what they do. And we're, you know, man, should we have to realize that the world is a natural world that we have to respect. And uh, it can change on us. And it has changed in this area around the vineyard and the cave into a great white shark feeding ground. Um, which it was not when I was a kid. So that's what I think the orca can represent a lot of things for that community um, and hopefully tell some great stories. And we have, um, we're working with Greg Skolmel, who's like the, we call him the Matt Hooper of Cape Cod. He goes out and tags sharks and everything. Uh, We'll be working with him on that. And uh, hopefully the end of this, uh, what we're trying to do is sell this for television uh, as a documentary about both the shark problem and the orca being involved in solving that shark problem. Uh, or at least from an observational point of view, and Greg Skomel going out and instead of tagging the orca um, or, it's, or, ta- or shooting a shark with a harpoon gun, he's going to be out tagging with this little you know, sonic beacon so that we can actually track these guys and see where they're going and how long they're there. I mean, it's like a earthquake early warning system. Eventually, if we tag enough sharks, most of the ones that move in land, in land will uh, show up on a, a transponder and we'll know they're there. We've lowjacked the shark. You know, I don't know if you remember what Lojack is, but, you know, we've GPS the shark. Um, and so that will be really helpful in just knowing what their patterns are. And if they change from going for these two islands that are seal populated to moving more ashore, or are the seals thinking now they're going to go to the vineyard to try and get some, you know, try and not be where all the other seals are. So that'll draw in the sharks to our shores. And, uh, you know, that's a possibility. So um, I think uh, the mission is really it's almost more important than I had never thought to get this boat other than a movie prop, you know, or a television uh, prop. Um, And now I realize it actually can have a pretty vital role in in helping out um, on the Island in a way. I think that, especially as I learn more about the science and what the biology of the ocean around the vineyard is doing, Mm -hmm. that this can actually be a way to get people's awareness on the the fact that's going on. And we can get people to say, we can teach them, you know, the basics, like, don't go swimming at dusk or dawn in the ocean where their sharks might be because that's when they love to hunt um, and uh, things like that. And there's a lot more, I'm sure. I'm just, that's my cursory <laughs> knowledge. I'm not a researcher or a scientist. Well, it's, it's kind of funny because uh, when, when I think about, like, like I said in the introduction uh, for, for Jaws and, you know, the five-year-old kid, even though it scared the hell out of me, it made me very much interested in sharks. Uh, like I, I held in my own personal life a desire at one point to become a marine biologist and study sharks, particularly great white because of the movie jaws. Um, so I think it's very fitting that the orca gets involved with that just from that standpoint, because I'm pretty sure there's a lot of people that probably were just like me that even though the movie was scary and frightening and, and exhilarating and all that, it also got you curious about, you know, the monster, as you, as you said, um, and wanting to know more about it. And I, I became a lot more sympathetic to sharks because of it. Um, two things that I wanted to, 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 to jump in on with what you were talking about with the, uh, with the orca and with the, uh, 
uh, research stuff. Uh, two, two, one was kind of a statement and another one was a, uh, uh, a question. Uh, the statement obviously was that when you were saying that you would love to get this, uh, the, the research, uh, on TV, you know, be it a documentary or something like that, I would imagine animal planet or discovery would absolutely jump, especially shark week would jump. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it's definitely a fit for those, uh, those channels and that demographic. I think shark week is really about the sharks. You know, the, the boat itself is kind of a cool add on really. It's not the prime story, which again, because it's so serious, I think it should, the shark should be the lead story. Like this is a problem that's growing off Martha's vineyard. Mm -hmm. And um, if you're not from the area, you you probably don't, you may not see the, the, the news coverage that we get, but, the news coverage is always Cape Cod, that outer shoulder from Monomoy Island up to Provincetown. And that's where all the shark, like that's where people are seeing there's a lot of seals out there. Um, so um, they definitely have a lot of sharks. And they have a lot more shark sightings, but that's where the, the spotlight's been on Cape Cod. It hasn't really been on Martha's Vineyard. And Greg Scomel has been very clear about the fact he thinks it needs to be a lot more research done there. And to figure out what's going on, there's a couple transponders, but really not a lot. Um, and, uh, they should get to be, you know, we're going to survey a couple places like those islands and then start to track our sharks where they go from there, you know, cause they're transient. Sometimes they're going to head back up to Cape Cod. So they're going around the island, you know, and if they spot a meal on the way, you just do the drive through version of being in a shark, you know, you just pick up a meal on the way. Um, so that's the kind of thing that can happen. <laughs> Martha's Vineyards is a McDonald's to a great white. Yes, exactly. Kind of. Yeah. But Hopefully the, just some seals and not like, you know, people from New Jersey and New York. Exactly. Um, but uh, the second question I was going to ask is obviously the Orca is going to be a, an operational uh, vessel. And like all operational vessels, sooner or later, she's going to she's going to end her shelf life and have to retire. When that happens, what would you expect that you would do with the Orca? Would you uh, turn her into a museum or maybe uh, send her to, especially because she comes from the uh, age of Hollywood where, most sets and, and props and all that were destroyed rather than kept for prosperity, uh, put it into a film museum, maybe alongside the, the, the junkyard jaws. Um, that's certainly a consideration. I hadn't thought about going that far. I've just been thinking, how do I get this boat in the water? That's my first and my only objective. But you have, you bring up a good point. What will her legacy be when she's no longer, um, operational? The beautiful thing I'll tell you about this boat that I've purchased for it is that, it has the same engine as Orca, a diesel 120 horsepower Lehman engine. Okay. And it has only 50 hours on it. Oh, so wow. it's a really recent engine um, and it's diesel and it'll run a long time. Pretty much it's like my Honda Pilot. The rest of the thing will fall apart around the engine, but <laughs> it's going to have a strong engine for a long time. You know, and that's the thing I'm learning about diesel is, you know, it has a longevity as long as you maintain it properly, that goes pretty far. It's a workhorse engine. So um, it's just keeping the boat in good shape. But yeah, she's a wood boat and she's going to need some things. And um, it's, uh, it's something where you have to consider that. The Jaws is 45 this summer and in five years, it'll be 50. And I think the 50th anniversary of Jaws is going to be, I mean, there's nothing bigger than that until the, the 100th right. you know, after that or the 75th maybe. But the 50th is a pretty significant like, boom, half a century of Jaws. That's what we have now. Um, and so... The Martha's Vineyard Museum uh, in, Martha, in Vineyard Haven, Martha's Vineyard is a really great place to consider putting the orc up for the 50th anniversary and saying, here it is for you to see as you walk through the gates 
maybe we can get people to walk on it, set up a little stairwell and go into the deck and go and explore the inside, um, right. you know, and, uh, and, and enjoy it that way because it eventually, you know, as long as it's, it's wood, as long as you varnish it and repaint it and you know, it will last long. You just, you store it properly in the winter and keep it in a place that isn't, you know, too wet and so forth. Um, so there's ways to maintain a long life out of that boat. Um, and it has been lightly used. Uh, it was purchased from a gentleman who passed, unfortunately, from cancer, and his son was getting rid of it. Um, but it was his dad's like project boat. He wanted to turn it into like a cabin cruiser. He has a there's a stove in there, a fridge, like a whole thing to like hook up your trout and eat it on the boat. And okay. There's a bunk up front and a bathroom. You can take you know go to the bathroom on the boat. I mean it's it's a real fishing vessel. Um, and so that um, it, it it I hope it has a long life ahead of it. Um, it needs work right now to get where it needs to be, but I've got, you know, the, the beauty is, is that, and I don't think we've gotten into this, but the designers of the original Orca are working on this project. We've got Joe Alves who's doing art direction and like the actual, um, you know, the painting and the, uh, the sculpturing that needs to go into the rope work, everything that makes it detail Orca, you know, we're doing the basic boat repair that we need to do. And then we're doing all the building of the custom elements that they made for the Orca like the flying bridge and the barrel rack and the pulpit, you know, all these things are, you know, some of that's iron work, it's welding, it's, uh, it's carpentry. It's, uh, there's a variety of disciplines in the, in the labor arts that are basically going to be used to get this boat to look like the Orca. And uh, it's no joke, you know, when Chris Crawford did it, you know, in 74, it was, you know, seven, eight guys working 12, 15 hours a day for six and a half weeks straight to get that boat ready from what it became, what it was, the warlock and turned it into the Orca. Right. So um, I think it's uh, it's going to be really incredible to see the process of it come together because it's not going to be fast. It's going to be, you know, at least probably two months of working on to get it there. And there'll be a lot of stories told about what we did to solve what problems and so forth. And the transformation will be incredible to see. You know, it doesn't look like the Orca right now. It's a basic a shell of the Orca you see there. It even has the portholes. But um, uh, and it's got the basic, you know, it doesn't have an upswept bow. The Orca has a straight one. But with bulwarks, those red things that came up to the pulpit, we need to add those to our boat. Um, but um, yeah, it's going to be an incredible process. So I think the building of the boat and watching that, and uh, you know, that's something we might actually might offer is the ability to see as we're building it some footage and see what's going on. And 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 we hear from Joe Alves as he's doing like, okay, you got to get this color paint. You know, I think we got to paint bird shit all over the deck, you know, it's going to look too new. So here we're going to use this color and it's going to be gray and you're going to spackle it, you know, and like just make it look like a bunch of birds hit the deck and Quint never cared to clean it up because he's Quint, you know? Right, right. Um, so I, I think there'll, there'll be a really uh, great way to tell the story of using this boat and, uh, and giving it to the museum for the 50th. And then probably, you know, it belongs on Martha's Vineyard unless, you know, if somebody who wanted that boat back, you know, and was involved with the film and may have directed it, if he wants to purchase it, then, um, you know, <laughs> we can have a discussion at some point. But I think there's no, I would rather we do, about. <laughs> yeah, I would rather it stay on Martha's Vineyard, you know, and he can visit it because he can fly anywhere in the world. So <laughs> that's, that's what I would hope for. I don't know the guy. I don't know the guy at all. So don't take this with a grain of salt, but I think even he would probably agree with you that the orca belongs to the vineyard. It belongs to Namity. Um, but I, I, I absolutely agree. I think, I think that would be the great thing. I'm excited to see this, uh, this built. I like, like you said, you would, uh, uh, you would almost do a, like a documentary, a making of the orca to, to see it being built, uh, Joe and, and crew, 
re, re, uh, refinishing it and, and creating it. I think that would be a great series. Even if it was just like a YouTube web series, I think it would be awesome just watching the full restoration of the, of the, of the Orca. And I'll be honest with you. I'm sitting here thinking to myself, you know how much I would love to, even if I just came up with my little iPhone, the day the Orca is ready just to come up and just, you know, kind of live broadcast. I'm on the Orca to sit down in the, uh, the mess area and, and sing, show me the way to go home with you, you know, or something like that. Like I, I, I can't tell you how awesome I think this is. And especially for the mission or the Orca, uh, as you said, where, where it's going to be helping charitably and it's also going to be helping with research and, 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 uh, and, and awareness of, of the natural world around us specifically with sharks. I don't think there's a greater, greater legacy for the Orca, especially because she is very pivotal in, in the fact that she was in the movie Jaws in 1975. And as I stated to you before, as much as the movie scared the living hell out of us, it did, I, in my personal opinion, it did bring a lot of awareness to those animals in our oceans. Some positive, some, some negative. I mean, I believe I read that Jaws did increase the hunting and killing of sharks until we started really understanding them better. But as much as it created the fear of the sharks that created that negative, it also resonated with people who went on to become marine biologists, went on to become the next Jacques Cousteau's, if you will, that, that went out and learned more about the sharks, their behaviors, their patterns, and realizing that the, these aren't just monsters with teeth. They are living, breathing animals that, that are very com- different than what our imagination led us to believe to begin with. And I, I can't think of a more noble cause for the, the shark hunter ship than to be a part of that. I appreciate that. And I think, um, no, it's great what you're saying, because I, that's the part that we really want to hear is people feeling it's the right thing to do with this boat. Um, you know, not exploitative. It's not, you know, we, we want it to be able to be a profit center to be able to keep itself alive and be available summer after summer after summer. So there's got to be a revenue model to using it so that it actually can be self-sustaining. But um, that goes in concert with the other things we've talked about, which are really the importance, and the reason for it to be there. Um, so the truth is that interesting what you talk about, because yes, yeah, sharks were demonized and, um, you know, there's, it's no mistake that Wendy Benchley is in a nonprofit about shark preservation and conservation and understanding research and so forth. She's been involved with that in a long time. Um, her and Peter Benchley, uh, you know, Jaws succeeded. Peter Benchley was now the talk of the world for a while of having written Jaws. He appears as a reporter on the beach scene in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, he was, a, he was there for the production and saw his, his brain child of Jaws, the book, turn into this incredible film. But he also, there was a double-edged sword to that, which was it did demonize sharks. And the Benchleys had a lot of problems with, like, just feeling like they were a part of suddenly making this animal feel like it should be hunted and killed because it's this, you know, predatory thing, you know, when in fact it's predatory against seals but not against people. It's usually an accident that they attack people. They think it's the word seals. Um, and we're in situations like boogie boarding at night, unfortunately, or other things where we're, we look like a seal on a silhouette. The sun's behind us. Can't see anything but a black shadowy figure. Seal's fins stick out. We have our hands by our sides. I mean, there's all these sort of like telltale silhouette things mm-hmm. that are similar to seals. If it was, you know, a jellyfish that sharks love to eat, then I don't think that humans would get hit that often. Right. <laughs> you know, they wouldn't mistake a jellyfish for a person, but they would definitely mistake a seal for a person 
particularly I think in like wearing dark and really not being like, you can't see the flesh and stuff. Um, but yeah, that the Benchley's had a lot of things that they wanted to do when they got involved in conservation. Uh, the people who captured the footage of Jaws um, in Australia that they used for the actual live action footage were Ron and Valerie Taylor. Ron unfortunately passed away uh, some years ago. Valerie Taylor is still scuba diving in the ocean, part of a conservation group, you know, she's out there. She was, you know, uh, you know, I think in her uh, early 30s um, or a little bit older when back in Jaws in 74. She is still in her, you know, the prime of her life, it looks like. It's incredible to see her do what she does. So, um, yes, there needed to be a, a reversing of this trend of thing, saying sharks are this way and we need to fear them. And, you know, any only good shark is a dead shark. You know, no, sharks shouldn't be dead because we fear them. We should be fine. You know, that's why we don't kill all the tigers in the world or all the bears in the world or all the, you know, other things that are potentially fatal to us if we, you know, try to match it physically. Um, but for some reason, sharks got the easily scapegoated because there's a lot of fear in the water, you know, on land. I don't know that, I don't think, I don't know that being pursued by a grizzly bear has the same visceral scariness that being pursued by a shark who you can't see and the water's thrashing about and he's coming around to get under you and come from the bottom. It's, it's a whole different thing. You know, there's no tree to run up. <laughs> exactly. It's the fear of the unknown. You could see the grizzly bear you can't necessarily see the shark. You're absolutely right. And I think, I think it's one of the things, uh, I think it also goes to human arrogance for personal opinion. I think it's personal arrogance uh, for humanity because on, on land, we're the apex. We're the top of the food chain. We're the apex, you know, um, for, for the most. As, as long as we're armed, I, would, I still wouldn't take on a grizzly bear. <laughs> as long as we're armed, but I mean, uh, we're, we're the apex because we have, you know, right. The, we have, we can make things and manipulate our world. Absolutely. Exactly. But I, I think that, I think that's where the fear of sharks come from is in the water. That's their world. They're the apex. And it scares us because when we want to enter their world, we're not the top of the food chain. <laughs> yeah. Interesting though. The, when you say that apex predator thing, uh, I, I would agree in most situations, although, we just saw some reports, some video reports coming in out of Nantucket and then out uh, from the Cape that there are killer whales, orcas now coming into the area of that. And the orca will, will destroy great white sharks. Oh, they're yeah. Tyrannosaurus rexes of the ocean and they're smart. Like they'll, to hunt seals on ice flows, orcas will team up and push the, the ice flow up from one end to slide the seal into the other side <laughs> or they'll ride in waves and grab a seal and get stuck for a little while. And then the next wave will come in and they'll shimmy themselves off the beach. Mm -hmm. So these are crafty, crafty creatures and uh, their thrust and weight ratio are completely off the charts compared to a shark. Shark has a bite that's incredible and it could swim fast and it has a real, like it's a, like a lot of fish, it's all muscle. But the orca is the Arnold Schwarzenegger of the ocean that has like speed and, and dexterity. And the sharks are like, you know, like an MMA fighter, you know, like they're not particularly heavy, but they know some techniques. Right. But there's nothing to compete against, like, you know, smart animals that just have 3000 pounds on you and are going to use it against you. And there's really very little you can do to like, you know, go against that. You know, they're, so the, the orcas are there hunting the, the sharks, maybe. And the sharks are there hunting the seals. And we just hope we're not part of that lineup. 
and that they're all fighting amongst each other. <laughs> That's it. That's it. But you know what? I, I'm, I'm reminded, I don't remember who said it, but I, it was in a book, a uh, shark book that I read a long time ago, is that uh, one of the few creatures on the planet that has not needed to evolve from prehistoric times is, is the shark. And the reason of being is because he didn't need to. Yeah, I mean, basically, I mean, he's been operating in the ocean for millions of years, and he is the apex predator of his own type, um, and definitely enjoys the fact that his design is extremely um, efficient and does what it needs to do. If there's a dead whale in the ocean, they'll all jump on it, eat it like piranha, like they just work their way through it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that, uh, yeah, the shark, and they, la- they live a long time, they're almost like tortoise in how long their lives are. So um, it's interesting to learn about sharks and think about, and there's so many breeds. I used to scuba dive off of Florida uh, when I worked there, um, you know, back in the late 90s. Okay. And we would go and scuba dive off of reefs of the uh, Palm, uh, sorry, the, uh, the Breaker Hotel in Palm Beach. And uh, nurse sharks would come out. We would night dive and go down with flashlights and, you know, little glow sticks on the back of our tanks. And uh, I would go over a reef with a flashlight for night diving because all the marine life comes out. And a nurse shark, while I'm coming, will just like push me out of the way, which is an eight foot, it's an eight foot shark. But it's a nurse shark is completely like they're not hostile. They don't, they eat krill. They're not really into eating people. So, but they're large and they're, you know, if you think about sharks, you think about the most terrifying ones when you see one. (laughs) That's the way it is. Um, So, but yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting to learn about them as a whole. And I think that that's going to be cool. There's other sharks besides great whites that are off the vineyard. So there's Makos, um, other types, uh, so, and basking sharks. They get very large. Basking sharks have been seen up to 25, 30 feet that are off Martha's Vineyard. And that's as big as Bruce was. Re- refresh my memory. The baskings are the ones that have like that really wide, almost like oval mouth, right? Yeah, it's almost like they look like a whale in some right. ways as opposed yeah. to a shark. Yeah, so, um, but they are a shark. They just have that weird strain, you know, because most sharks are kind of like darted, you know. They mm-hmm. come to a point. Like they're a, they're, they're a very sucked in uh, dolphin, you know, they don't, they have a line that kind of is really, it's fast. You know, the dolphins are actually faster, I think. Don't quote me on that. I'm not, I'm not Bear grills, but. Um, I believe they yeah. are. Uh, yeah, I, they may be. Um, so um, yeah, they're impressive animals. And I think that that's the thing about them is, is study of them, realize why they didn't need to evolve. And you'll, the more you know about the shark, it's sensitivity to blood, like all the things Jaws does point out. The sounds, the blood, the, you know, the predatory behavior that kind of like, you know, is intelligent. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, it's impressive to see them. And, but they're animals. They're just like anything else on the earth that we need to respect. And, uh, yeah, I'm glad the killing is no longer really celebrated as it was for a while. And we're, you know, we're evolving the idea of what it is to be in a relationship with sharks in Amity, hopefully. Well, I could definitely say this much about it. Um, I am absolutely excited. I can't wait for this to happen. I, I, I'm in Philadelphia. I know I'm uh, at least an eight to 10 hour drive uh, away from Martha's Vineyard, but I fully intend to come see the orca when she's put in the water and, and functioning. And I absolutely have to have you back when you have her up and running, especially when you could talk about more of, of some of the things you have going on uh, and all that. Um, but before we do, is there anything in particular for the listeners who may want to get more information about this, maybe 
some way be involved in this or whatever. Any, any ways, anything that you'd like to let them know to be able to be more involved with uh, not only uh, the, the return of the Orca, uh, but the, and I'm going to blank the name of it, but the documentary about, uh, about the, uh, the, the making the monster. Yeah, the, the docudrama of docudrama. Making the Monster. Yeah, documentary, obviously. It's, it's, it, 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 there's a lot of confusion over that. And because docu is at the head of the word, right. I think that's the main reason. Um, no, I, I really appreciate that. And I, I love that you're excited about it, you know, because I think that that's what we want to see. Um, you know, it's during COVID, it's really hard to know how a project like this is going to be received because people have really strong priorities right now of doing things if they're unemployed, if they're, you know, a lot of people are kind of challenged. I've been very fortunate. I work in the media mm -hmm. and we are considered essential in Massachusetts and we are news and information. So in many ways, our jobs became even more in demand. Right. Um, you know, I've been going into work ever since the, the, the virus started and not, I, I just recently took some time off uh, because I thought I was ill and I needed to get a COVID test and luckily it came back negative. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's been a, a really fast period of a lot of information needing to get out to people and in short time and everybody working remotely, like nobody's in the building, I'm doing all the work and we're doing zoom calls and so forth to get it done. Right. So, um, it's very interesting how we've adapted and we're doing pretty well. I think everybody's using zoom and everybody's doing like teams. And, you know, I, I joked with a friend of mine the other day, I said, if this virus hit in 1993, we would be so screwed. Like, we would not have the technology. It's like my 56k modem won't, le won't let me download this PDF in under 15 minutes. It's huge. Um, stuff <laughs> trying, like that. Trying to trying to have meet, uh, staff meetings on uh, Yahoo Messenger or AOL uh, AIM. <laughs> I'll tell you one thing about the one thing about the Jaws people that I uh, I've learned uh, that are you know have basically you know worked on the film and they have email addresses. They're all AOL subscribers. It's really weird. Is all it of them have. Most of them, I'm not all of them, but a lot of them have AOL addresses. And I'm like, why? Like, there's some people like, you know, we've mentioned, I, I don't want to say, well, you'll never figure out that Joe Alves has an AOL address. You can never figure out what it is. Um, mm -hmm. It's not Joe Alves at AOL.com, <laughs> just in case you were going to try it. Um, but he has an AOL address. And I go, what is it? He's like, I've had this for decades. It's like, everybody knows it. It's just there. No one's going to shut it off on me. And, uh, you know, I've got thousands of contacts or more than tens of thousands of contacts in the world who know that email address. I'm not going to swap it out and send out 15,000 emails of, by the way, Joe's email address has changed. Right. So, um, so yeah, so it's interesting. A little side note. Um, but, um, uh, you know, where were we? Uh, the the uh, getting more information. Yes, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, I, I have a tendency to wax on tonight for some reason. The information, we are currently basically de de developing a landing page for the project where it's nothing, it's not a lot of information right now. Basically, it's to give you an opportunity to enter your email address and be put on a, a mailing list so that you can receive some updates. And we're not going to like barrage you all the time with stuff. We're not selling you anything necessarily. What we're trying to do is get people to feel like if they want to know what's going on with this project, they can, uh, they'll get some email up, uh, updates. And eventually there will be an online presence. There'll be Twitter, there'll be Facebook, there'll be Instagram, all the normal cast of characters when you have a, a brand presence of anything. So, and we have branded this basically Return of the Orca to give it a place where everybody can go. And that's where you're going to go, www.returnoftheorca.com. That email address, that, that URL should be available soon. I think that we're having it hosted in the UK and they're working on getting it um, you know, dealt with. So it's basically ironclad. But we are starting to put the word out and go to returntotheorca.com. 
and you'll be able to enter your email address and we'll give you updates on what's going on with the project. Uh, ReturnityOrca.com, that is all one word, correct? Uh, no spaces or underscores? Correct. Yeah, all one word, uh, basically, exactly. You don't have to think about doing anything but typing it all lowercase or uppercase or upper, lower, upper, lower. It'll still work. <laughs> <laughs> that, that works out. You know what? Be, normally at this point, I'm going to give the outro, but there's one question that I've been sitting on. I've been sitting on since the beginning of the conversation because I wanted to be able to get into the, uh, the Return of the Orca. I wanted to get into the making of the monster. I wanted to get into the things that you've done in your life besides being an extra in Jaws growing up in Martha's Vineyard. But I've got to ask, you were there before the, uh, the, the crew, cast and crew came in in 1974 to create the shark and, and create the movie that, that changed the world, uh, especially in the world of filmmaking for the summer blockbuster. But you were also there after that film crew packed up and left. Here's a question that I don't think a lot of people, I, at least myself, I don't think a whole lot of people have ever asked as far as uh, Jaws's presence within Martha's Vineyard, within Amity, as you were. How much did that world change after Jaws? You know, it was... Um... It stayed long, but then, you know, years later, I do recall there being this sort of like, whoosh, did that really happen type thing where this kind of like big event has, and then you get back to normal life and you're like, you're thinking on it, it's like, yeah, wasn't that incredible? It's 18 months ago, but, or it's been two summers since Jaws left, you know, they left and, you know, I'm going back to school, the film's packing up and leaving. Um, a couple of people, their lives completely changed. For example, the owner of the Kelly house, uh, Bob Carroll, Bob Carroll was in real financial challenges when the Orca, or, sorry, before the, the, the film came uh, to Martha's Vineyard, and he was trying to figure out how to keep his hotel alive. And now it's a $500 a night, like luxury, you know, Egertown <laughs> hotel. Um, but at the time, it was, how do we make sure we can keep the lights on in this place? Right. And they kept the lights on and then some. So Kelly House did very well, a lot of local businesses, Tons of fishermen who had boats that were useful to the production were, you know, doing well. I mentioned the person who, you know, who worked on it and basically got their home built out of it and have it to this day. Um, all sorts of things changed for the island. And I think that um, to some people, it's a footnote today. You know, it really is sort of like, okay, that happened. Yeah, we get some people who like to take Jaws tours and buses and see all the locations and so forth. Um, which reminds me of something I should let our, our viewers know also. You may not be, know, be aware of this other thing that we did just okay. between all the other stuff we're doing. That's um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, um, yeah, that, I'll just – I'll see you into it. Um, we created something uh, – John Campopiano, Jim Beller, and I, uh, we worked on creating the Ultimate Jaws Location Guide. And if you just Google Ultimate Jaws Location Guide, um, you will find uh, links to our 3D map uh, made on Google Earth. Oh. And it's a great interactive map that you can basically zoom into almost 80 locations from the movie, uh, right down to the specific, like, where was the grandstand in the band on the 4th of July sequence? It was right here in the sand here. Hmm. Um, you know, everything, all the details that we can get in there. And Jim Beller included some uh, photographs that nobody's ever seen behind the scenes of making the Jaws. Because oh, wow. he's one of the biggest collectors in the country. And so he allowed those, uh, brought some of those photos in. We've got some photos from the crew enjoying drinks out at the, the old Colonial Inn, which was across the street from the Kelly House. And Cal Accord generously provided those photos to us. Um, and uh, great, you know, there's uh, Richard Dreyfus playing cards with Cal and some other painters and carpenters on the crew. 
they were a family. And it's really cool to see all that. But the Ultimate Jaws Location Guide is a great tool. If you want to go to the vineyard and see all the locations, take a tour, by all means. We're not trying to, like, kill the tour business on the vineyard. But if right. you're just walking around Edgartown and you want to call up an app on your phone and say, where was Brody's police station? Like, you'll see where you are, and then you can just zoom over to where this police station is and figure out how you just walk over to it. Um, it's an interactive tool and not just like a, it's not a website. It's a, it's a live application that is all the JAWS locations. So yeah. we encourage everybody, it's free. It's just take it, use it. Like, we don't care. We just made it so you could have fun with it. You know, you bring up a very good point, though, uh, which kind of ties into my, to how, how much has uh, Martha's Vineyards changed since the, uh, since the invasion of JAWS. Um, obviously the tours and everything else, but how many things were preserved? Like is Brody's, uh, 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 police station still there? Is his office still there? Oh yeah. Listen, the thing about Martha's Vineyard is it's a quintessential quaint New England fishing village that's built around a huge tourism industry. So the <laughs> thing to remember about the vineyard is, and it's a lot like Nantucket. Nantucket, like, you, if you're going to build anything, you got to do with these gray shingles. You know, we're not like that. There's white and stuff on the vineyard. Um, the, the Nantucket has their own building codes. But when you fly over it, I'm like, every building has gray shingles. Like, that's what you're supposed to do there. So the vineyard, yes, you will see everything from that movie. And a matter of fact, the Daily Jaws, a great group that we like a lot, the Daily Jaws just put together a... Um, uh, uh, we make, they remade Jaws and they took scenes from everybody across the planet during the pandemic and they edited them together into the actual full film of Jaws just with everybody adding a little line or scene or whatever. Some of it's animated, some of it's, but some of them went to the vineyard and shot and you will definitely see the architecture of Egertown is very much the same today as it was back then. And uh, yeah, the bank, that, you know, where let Polly do the printing. That building, that red brick building, is exactly the same and sitting in the exact same spot. You go to the vineyard, you will see Amity. That's the beauty about the place. Is that, and I think that's one of the great things. It's it's an a largely untouched location that you can visit and see everything from the film. The exceptions being the the bridge that was during the uh, you know the Michael Brody attack sequence and the you get you kids okay over there and that leg comes off in the pond. Um, that was, that's Jaws Bridge and it's now, uh, concrete and metal and it was wood back then. Right. Um, so it was rebuilt. So that bridge is no longer what you see in the film, but it's there as a bridge and you can pretty much see the jetty that, you know, Brody runs down when he knows his son is in the pond and the shark's gone in the pond because the girl with the patches, you know, calls out to him. So, um, that's about it. Menemsha is still looks very much like Quint's fishing village, you know, the, the little gray shacks are still there that it passes in front of when they're going out to sea. Um, it really does hold a lot of the same. So if, if you've never been to Martha's Vineyard and you're a Jaws fan, I say it's one of the best places in the world to like see a film match the actual place still 45 years later. That would be awesome. I've definitely got to ask about the Brody house, their, their, their little beach house. Is Knocked down and replaced. Oh. Yeah. Um, it looks similar, but it definitely looks more updated. Mm. You know, it's like the old 70s kitchen that the Brodies lived in and stuff. And I want my cup back, you know, with the swing set. Um, <laughs> it's more like the Hamptons now. Uh, so uh, That's disappointing. <laughs> sorry to disappoint. <laughs> and, a... and, and Quinn's fishing uh, shack is, was only there just long enough for the shoot. They built that and tore it down. Right. Um, and so that's no longer there. But um, yeah, there's, uh, um, there are definitely, there's some locations that look very much the same. Um, and, uh, I'm trying to think of it, you know, gay head where they, you know, 
have the conversation of, you know, you know, I think you're, the shark's going to, you're going to ignore this particular problem until the shark swims up and bites you on the ass, Dreyfus's line. Um, you drive there, you'll see that whole layout as just as it was. There's just not a sign with Brian De Palma's face, uh, girlfriend's face on it, you know, yelling <laughs> shark. Um, that's who that was modeled after was Brian De Palma's girlfriend nice. that they painted it. <laughs> That's a, that you know what though that's a shame. It, it, I would almost imagine they would have kept that billboard. It's probably well, you know again you mentioned the fact that when movies are wrapped they kind of like okay this is a theater piece that the theater show is closed so we're gonna like you know tear it apart and we're gonna use it on something else or we're gonna burn it or whatever. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the stuff was considered disposable. So yeah, that sign could exist somewhere. Um, although um, I don't think I've seen it reported. There are things that have gone out to auction, which are interesting. Um, Peter Spadetti is a, a friend of mine uh, with the community of Jaws up here in Northeast Boston, Rhode Island. And uh, there's a lot of them. Jim Beller is here in, in Providence and, and John Campopiano is here in Boston. So it's a weird little like confluence, but Peter owns the fighting chair from the Orca, the actual fighting chair that, that oh. Robert Shaw sat in. And he got it at auction over $30,000. Oh, wow. So he's serious about this Jaws stuff. Um, <laughs> so it's inspiring. He actually has the production sign that was hung over the, the Christine Peace House in Egertown where they actually, they hung up the sign that says Jaws production uh, offices. And uh, that's where they were. Um, and they doubled actually, those offices were then turned into the sets for Brody's police station when he's typing and mm -hmm. enters shark attack or coroner's office, not coroner, it says coroner, C-O-R-N-E-R, mm -hmm. but it's supposed to say coroner. See, Jaws isn't perfect. They misspelled the word. <laughs> um, and uh, so, but that was the production office. He has the sign, the actual sign that they use. And one side is misspelled. It says production. There's no I in the shun. Uh -huh. um, and we, we checked it out and we saw photos from 1974. And yeah, that's the sign because one side was misspelled. Oh. Um, so really cool. Um, and he has the actual toe fin, full-size toe fin that was used to tow behind and just show the fin. He owns that. I mean, Peter has spent a lot of money on Jaws. Let's put it that way. <laughs> I would, I would imagine. Like I, I've seen, I've seen things, and you know, I knew, I knew there was a big community for Jaws. I, I did know there was a big community. I never realized there was as much collectibles as again with being a Star Wars fan and and all that. Of course, I knew about Star Wars as merchandising, but Jaws, besides like posters and 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 uh, you know, like maybe coffee cups or something like that you know, back in the seventies and early eighties and all that, that, that I thought that was about as far as Jaws went like t-shirts, coffee cups and, and uh, you know, uh, movie posters. It's I incredible because if you go to Jim Beller's house, again, he's the number one collector in the country. He's probably forgotten more uh, memorabilia than any of us will also collect ourselves because uh, he has so much. And they made everything Jaws. When that film came out, it was an international sensational hit. And so there was products not just being made here in the United States by Universal, but the licensing deals, you know, licensing became like Star Wars licensing was huge. Mm -hmm. And that's where a lot of the money for ILM and Lucasfilm came from was George Lucas got to keep those merchandising rights. Mm -hmm. And yeah, after the movie theaters are emptied and now if you're playing Ishtar, you're not showing Empire Strikes Back anymore. You know, the, the, the licensing of Jaws or sorry, Star Wars memorabilia. Uh, or action figures or anything that you can license and have, say, yeah, you can sell that. We at Lucasfilm want $50,000 and you get for 18 months to sell your product. And right. they would do it because there was enough money in Star Wars selling, you know, back then it was an easy thing, but you made money on licensing. 
And I think that's basically what happens here. Um, so um, yeah, the collections are incredible and Jim shows you stuff from all over. There's Jaws ties, there's Jaws toilet seats. You know, you open the lid and there's Bruce like within the classic pose from the poster. Um, there's no end to the amount of things that people tie, you know, Jawsified. And there was no end to the ripoffs, the magazines that came out. You know, we used to read these things called magazines that, you know, you couldn't like, you know, pinch and get make it larger. You'd actually have to flip the page and look at it closer. But um, the magazines that were huge, everybody was now a Jaws, like it was, it was sharks. That's the beauty. If you sold a shark magazine back then, you were getting the royalties of, you were, you were getting the benefit of Jaws because mm -hmm. everybody was into it. But you just had to say Jaws of Death on the cover. You didn't, you didn't say Jaws because, you know, you can't copyright the name, the word Jaws in the context of the movie and telling, you know, you can't make a movie called Jaws and like take that name. But Jaws is just, you know, it's, a, it's mandibles. It's, so you can use it in, in uh, your editorial in a way that makes it feel related to that stuff. So all that was just so crazy. And the amount of publications, you know, I couldn't, you know, it wasn't until Star Wars showed up that the, the Jaws publication started to like leave the, the newsstands, you know, because Jaws remained, it was re-released a number of times. It went to television on ABC, you know, and everybody watched that. It was huge. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, it's, there was, there's more collectibles than you could possibly imagine to borrow a line from Star Wars. Well, I, like I said, you know, like I never realized, I know there is now, like I've seen like Funko Pop figures of Bruce and, and uh, the, the Orca, you know, and of course I've seen like busts of, of Bruce's head that you can have sit on your desk. And, you know, I, I've seen the memorabilia now, but I was shocked to realize that there was so much memorabilia even back then, you know, uh, as, as I explored and delve into it more, it's like this really had a lot stronger fan base than even I was aware of. And I knew there was a fan base for Jaws, you know? So it, yeah. it absolutely is fascinating. The final question I've got to ask you, I, I do got to ask this, and this is something as a movie buff that has driven me nuts for numerous times. So it's going to be a two-part question. Okay. Question number one, with the way Hollywood has been nowadays with reboots, do you think Jaws would or ever should have a reboot? I'll answer the latter half of your question and say there should never be a reboot of Jaws. I agree. Um, I agree. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, you know, listen, I, I, that might be, you know, I'm obviously of an advanced age. If I was five years old in 1975, um, you know, that you should understand that obviously I'm not a spring chicken. So that might be just sort of an attitude that I have. You know, kids are seeing, you know, younger people see Jaws in a different light than those of us who were alive when it came out. So I can understand there being... A different of opinion there and so there's all these like talk like what if ll cool j was hooper you know things like that it's like okay try something different i don't know um but i don't think the film needs a reboot i think it's very hard to you know nobody's re and this is going to sound pompous and pretentious but like you know and that i'm calling it a perfect movie but it's like asking somebody well you know could somebody else make a, a mona lisa why don't somebody else do a mona lisa like why not you know, she could be smiling more instead of that coy little like grin. Um, you don't, nobody wants to do that. Nobody wants to create that again because it is emblematic. And Jaws uh, is in many ways such a seduction of storytelling. And I don't think that there's anything you can do because that's the essence of whether the shark looks fake or there's errors in continuity or whatever. You know, it doesn't matter. You went with that whole picture the first time you saw it. I don't care who you were. It pulled you in, got you arrested, and spit you out of the theater like you had been attacked by a shark. 
That's what a lot of people felt. Right. Um, so I think that you don't need a reboot. I think that there's more material to explore around the legacy of Jaws, and that's what Making the Monster hopes to be, is not a reboot, but a, a reinterpretation of a whole another part of the making of that film that most people haven't ever seen and would be surprised to hear some of these stories. Like, there's stories that we've learned in interviews of things that happened on that picture, and nobody, the, the, the populace at large hasn't heard them. And they're incredibly crazy stories. Like somebody, I'm not going to name names, stole the shark <laughs> at one point and towed it across the harbor. Okay. And I got caught. I, I, I could be completely wrong here. And I, you, you neither have to co uh, confirm or deny it, you know, but uh, I almost see Dreyfus being the one doing that. <laughs> I can almost see Dreyfus just hooking it up, to, hooking it up to a hitch and driving it around the island for the hell of it. <laughs> well, yes, but Dreyfus wasn't a really good boat driver. Um, <laughs> so Chris Crawford, the the production pilot, is actually the person driving the orca the entire film. Dreyfus never did, or or Shaw never did. They were just you know holding a wheel that did nothing. Right. Um, so, uh, but they, uh, yeah. So he wasn't a very good boatsman, but. No, this is somebody actually was very good with boats, was, but was very unhappy with the set and the, what was going on with the film wow. and, um, and got caught, you know, in the moorings. The shark got caught in the moorings that were unattended and got then stuck. And he's out there with his knife trying to pull like the lines and like they, it was a mess. It was a mess. Uh, they had a food fight on the set. You know, there's all these things that happened that were just people like getting steam blown off because they were just, they, they had a bunker mentality. How are we getting out of here? We don't know. Keep right. shooting. You know, that's, that's what we do. We want it out of here. We keep shooting. That's, that's all they thought. Well, with the, with the final question that I had to, for the two parter, uh, obviously I agree. And, and, and by the way, I was born in 77, so I'm not that far behind you, <laughs> but uh, as far, as far as uh, obviously I agree 100%, there's certain movies that were just lightning in a bottle. You should never retouch, you know, uh, amongst those I would say is like gone with the wind. Uh, the original Star Wars trilogy and Jaws is in there as well. There's just some movies you do not redo. However, I don't think necessarily that there would be a uh, a piss poor idea of maybe re-emerging with a new sequel. Well, I think, um, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, obviously there's a, a, a strained history of hanging in there as a loyal Jaws follower. I enjoyed two. I know that Roy Scheider didn't enjoy shooting too. Um, he was contractually obligated and had a lot of, uh, you know, uh, challenges with the director um, mm -hmm. because Spielberg wasn't doing it. He was making close encounters. So this was, this went to somebody else entirely. Um, so, but yeah, I think Jaws 2 was a great sort of follow-up was not the same magic, but was definitely a, a really watchable film. Jaws 3 is a whole departure from the storytelling of the Jaws saga in like in very not besides the fact that you know Dennis Quaid is a Brody boy you know it's really it's set in this world in sea world and not really connected to Amity in any other way right. so it's not until Jaws 4 or I should say I call it Jaws 4 I know it's Jaws the Revenge right. that Michael Caine was in and uh who will to this day in interviews say he has no idea what Jaws the Revenge is like as a movie because he's never watched it but he loves the house it built in uh, the Bermuda. So, <laughs> so 
that's pretty enough to look at and that's what he chooses to look at right. uh, jaws the revenge to me is an extremely flawed film and i just don't you know there's people we watched it one time in a hilarious situation we didn't even have the audio set up right we were playing it through a guitar amp so it was like a really bizarre way to watch it and this shark roars and comes out of the water like it's up on stilts and you know gets punctured by the front of the boat and Ellen Brody's character has flashbacks to scenes that she was never even around. Right. Like she has a flashback to her husband, you know, smile, you son of a bitch, and shooting it. And she's like, oh, he's back. He's got revenge. It's like, Ellen, you weren't on the boat for that part. Mm. <laughs> so why do you have a flashback of it? Um, just totally bizarre. But they wanted to get you to think about the original film and connect that story back to the present. They just didn't think about it logically, unfortunately. Well, um, that that's the thing, and and I, I've thought about this myself. Like I I don't I personally do not have an issue with three, uh, except for the really bad three D effects. Um, if they ever remastered three and took that out, and made it look like a proper film, I think it would actually be a better film. Four is one of those movies that like to me is like Superman four, the quest for peace. There's mm. a reason Brian Singer's Superman Returns decided that it was five years after Superman 2 and 3 and 4 just didn't exist. You know, right. I would almost imagine a sequel to Jaws, even if it's called Jaws 5, would probably do the exact same thing. Just erase 3 and 4 completely. <laughs> well, yeah, that, that could happen. I do know that there is a graphic novel being uh, uh supported on uh, like a, a crowdfunding platform i believe it's called i'm not sure if it's called amity but i believe it's basically a comic book graphic novel uh, adaptation of amity uh in the years after the initial shark attacks on amity island okay and it, it wants to explore that world a little bit and say hey let's look at what amity turned into years later um jaws 2 interestingly enough um and this is something i learned also in in the working on the project over the last two years is that Jaws 2 was initially started as a film by John, um, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm gonna, John, John Hancock as a director. Okay. And unfortunately, John was let go uh, a number of weeks into production. But his vision of Jaws 2 was Amity, shut down, completely desolate, the economy has completely wiped it out uh, because the shark attack is known as the, you know, it was, they were the mayor of Shark City, you know, Larry Vaughn was the mayor of Shark City. So word got around that they basically like, you know, for the sake of commerce, put people's lives at risk and nobody was coming to Amity anymore. That was kind of poo-pooed by the studio and said, no, we don't want, we want this to be a fun summer movie. And you're telling like this sort of like ghost town story. It works on paper and books and whatnot, but we're doing another summer movie here. So people go to a, a movie in the summer, they probably want to see what they saw in the movie. Teenagers on sailboats, like, you know, sail surfing and like, you know, having a blast on catamarans and all that stuff, which they actually shot in Destin, Florida. Um, <laughs> but um, they, they shot a little bit on Martha's Vineyard, but Jaws 2 was mostly just a few pickups on the vineyard and the rest was down in Florida. Right. So, um, but yeah, I, I think the sequels have a, you know, they're, they all have an interesting, unique niche they put in there. Um, and, uh, but I think there's more stories to be told around that universe and who knows, but I think, you know, it needs to, it needs, obviously when you have a Jaws as the, the source material, I think it's important to really aim high and create something that feels, like I always felt Deep Blue Sea nodded to Jaws. It's like, yes, you did this for us, Rennie Harlan and, you know, Samuel Jackson's in that movie and, and um, 
Thomas Jane and like Saffron Burroughs has really great performances. LL Cool J is the cook with the parrot, you know, the comedy relief. Um, I thought that film was fun. I didn't, and it's one of the, I think after Jaws, it's probably one of the better shark films I know that's out there, um, as well-made as it was. And, you know, at one point, the character pulls a license plate out of one of the smart sharks in the pen, and mm -hmm. it's the same license plate that they pull out of the tiger shark in Edgartown that when Hooper cuts it open. That's so, like, I, I knew that was a nod to Jaws. I didn't know that was the exact same license plate. Exactly. Louisiana, whatever the numbers are on there, it's exactly the same license oh. plate. So, um, so yeah, it's, uh, there's definitely deference to Jaws and a little bit of a tip of the hat. Like, yeah, you're the king. We just want to be like, can we have your license plate in one of our sharks? Thank you. And <laughs> we're moving on. Um, so, uh, but I enjoyed that film and I thought it was good. And I always mention Open Water, which I thought was a really neat independent movie about a couple who's based on a true story and about a couple that um, basically uh, got stuck on a scuba tour after, during their honeymoon and forgotten by the boat crew. And they just bobbed up and down in the water, you know, 20 miles from shore, maybe 15, however far it was. It was too far to swim, let's put it that way. Right. And they perished out there. They never found them. Um, and that was the reef, the Great Barrier Reef. You're out in Shark City. So that was made into a film by Chris Kentis and his wife. And that was incredible. I thought it was really well done. And it was shot on weekends. And, you know, they worked on it for a year or so and spent all their own money. And they made a really taut thriller about what it must be like to be stuck in the middle of the ocean day and night and be hunted by sharks. And finally, we don't know what happened to them. They disappeared, but they probably survived for a while. And one of them got killed before the other. It's just terrifying to think of. Well, see, you're not wrong. I've seen I've seen movies since Jaws where, like, obviously none of them are ever in the quality of the 1975 blockbuster. But I mean, you know, I've seen ones that were good, like you mentioned, Deep Blue Sea. I would even say Meg was uh, had had its place. But then I've seen ones like Jaws of Death and Tintora, which are they're just not good. You know, they're they're at least a little bit more serious versions of Sharknado. Yeah, right. they're just they're 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 not good films and. Unfortunately, that is, like you said earlier, there's always been a lot of pretenders that followed Jaws. And those were some of the ones that did. And unfortunately, it created a, a hard place for the, I guess, the, the horror shark movie. Because you're either going to find a gem or you're going to find Cole. Yeah, and I think that's a fair assessment about Jaws movies. They kind of polarize. They actually do a really good job. Or they don't they, they they don't really aim high and they're just trying to ride the subject matter. You know, they're not really spending a lot of money on script, they're not spending a lot of money on actors. They're not even there was an Italian film, I think it was Italian, I forget the name of it, but it was such a ripoff of Jaws that Universal said, No, you can't make this movie. It basically has a Quint character, a Chief Brody, has a mayor. I mean, it has all the things that made Jaws Jaws. Like this is clearly a derivative work. Um, and so they were shut down. Um but other films just need to have like, you know, characters screaming because they're being attacked by a shark and nothing like the story of Jaws and mm -hmm. they're still trying. Um, but yeah, I think that you're right. There's, there's definitely the aiming high or not. What I like about Sharknado, and I'm not a huge fan of Sharknado by like, you know, the stretch of saying, wow, what a great tribute to Jaws. No, I think Sharknado is so self-aware as ridiculous mm -hmm. that it's like, it's one of those things you sit around and watch during summer with your friends drinking beers at the beach and it's so ridiculous that you're laughing at it. You don't need to hear all the dialogue. Hey, more power to you, Ian Ziering from 90210. Enjoy your resurgence as one of the characters in Sharknado. We're all, they bring back these actors we haven't seen since the 90s, you know? 
Right. Um, so I think that's interesting. It can't be fun. You know, it's like, what if you put Hasselhoff in there? Same idea, you know? <laughs> Hasselhoff is the NATO. <laughs> yeah, there's a, part in, there's a part in a Sharknado movie where apparently there's a lifeguard like Hasselhoff that there's a, a victim on the ground whose heart isn't beating and he takes two sharks that have somehow become electrified from the, the tornado and strikes the woman in the chest with both the sharks like uh, charging paddles from a, a you know, a, 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 in a hospital and thunk, and he gets her back to life, throws the sharks back and, you know, there you go, ma'am. Ridiculous. <laughs> Absolutely ridiculous. But the fact that they did that and were just like, let's go for it. Let's like do something so stupid and have fun with it. And I, I have to admire the film for being like, yeah, you're not trying to make like real scary drama. You're making something that we're just going to laugh at and have fun with, but you're doing it and you're, you are providing entertainment. So who's to say it's crap? I'm not going to say that. I think it intentionally wants to be a parody of Jaws or shark films in general. And so, hey, parodies are fun. You know, it's, it's not like Airplane, but it's still a parody. Well, that, that, that's fair. I, I probably am being a little mean to, uh, to Sharknado. If I were to have a complaint about Jaws 2, though, I was thinking about this when you were saying that the original director had a more desolate worldview of uh, Amity uh, five years after the original shark attack, you know, Shark City and all. You brought up a good point that had me thinking while you were speaking. And if I had one complaint was that how the hell was Vaughn still mayor? You know, that's the question that that's actually that's the get out and vote moment right now that everybody is sharing about Jaws. Like, um, yeah, what's the meme? The meme is, you know, it's like, look at this. The mayor in Jaws is still the mayor in Jaws too. Get out and vote. You know, like, how can a guy like that get reelected to a second term after what the disaster there is? And it's like, because maybe it was all the hotel owners and restaurant owners and all the people that wanted the money to keep rolling in, even if there was another shark attack. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it definitely was, you know, yes, there's a lot of interesting parallels to today and the virus. People are talking about like, you know, the Jaws, the shark in Jaws is COVID and the mayor is our government, you know, saying that we basically need to get everybody, all the kids back in school or get the businesses reopened. And meanwhile, people are still dying in the tens of thousands in this country. And we've got some of the worst numbers in the world. So why are we telling everybody to like, I know we've got money and lives to live, um, but we're, we're having, so it's very much like Jaws, this whole virus situation. Um, and I think that that's not the reason Jaws is timeless, but it's just kind of weird how right now there's so much that feels so parallel to the, the, some of the, the values and the, the, the storylines that are being told in the film. And that's just weird. I mean, it's a popular film. It was popular before all this stuff. Now it's coincident. And there's sharks off Martha's Vineyard. Like, how much more does this film have to try and connect to the real world? I don't know. Well, I, I will say I will say this much for the people out there that are, are pulling the, uh, the 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 similarities between Jaws and things that are happening in the real world. Remember, there is a happy ending, and at some point, the shark dies, and the movie ends. Right. The vaccine is the scuba tank, people. Once the vaccine is out there, that's the scuba tank that will blow up the virus, or at least our ability to not be killed by it. So, <laughs> um, hang in there until we get to the the vaccine, which hopefully isn't too far away. I'm. I would militarize the CDC to like basically get that vaccine developed with whoever and make it a contest among, you know, biotech companies. Like this is the race of the century to get COVID under control. So I would think a vaccine is, you know, being developed in multiple countries around the world with a lot of money thrown at it and, you know, aggressive testing and so forth. But we got to get it right. You know, COVID is like 
elegant and we need to treat it in a way that we, you know, we haven't always had the best history with vaccines. Sometimes they've introduced new problems and you play with genetic whack-a-mole, like you took care of this problem, but then this one pops up. Right. Um, so you got to be careful. But so we don't want to rush into it is what I'm thinking. Um, but, I, but I was, I was sitting there thinking about it. I'm like, you know what? I could live like five years later. Amni may have taken a dip after, after the 4th of July issue and then had a resurgence in its economy. But how the hell did people not vote Vaughn out of office? <laughs> you had me thinking about that that whole time. I'm like, that makes no sense to me. But uh, well, in the story, in the storytelling world, it's convenient, right? Like you have the same villain. You know, you need to, you know, all you're showing is the, now Brody has to deal with the fact that guy's still in his way. And maybe, yeah, he, he does remember there was a shark, but he's also, that's why like the real estate developer in Jaws 2 and him, they're, you know, now they're playing a game of we're going to build condos here and we need the money bad and we need to get all these people interested in living here and the shark's going to blow up that program too because mm-hmm. we need to recover. Um, but I think that that was, yeah, that's, that's part of that is, yeah, they made an antagonist in the film. The shark's an antagonist. The same mayor is also an antagonist. Mm-hmm. And now he's got a, another antagonist like greedy developer to making condos to be another antagonist and drive Brody crazy. And ultimately he gets fired because they, he just gets, doesn't get with the program. He's not going to do what he did in the first half of Jaws. He's going to be like the defiant one that he is in Jaws too, right. and stronger and, and will actually wade out in the water to like pull a body that's been blown up and charred in a speedboat. Like he, he steps into the water in Jaws too in ways he never did in Jaws. He was afraid of the water in Jaws. So interesting things about how that story evolved anyway for the sequel. That's why I like Jaws 2 the most out of all the sequels. But again, it'll never touch the originals. Dave, this has been an absolute blast. I've had an absolute wonderful time. For our listeners, uh, is there any way if they have questions that maybe we haven't answered uh, in some way, shape, or form, or maybe you want to just get some more information from you, uh, any, any way you want to direct them to like maybe social media or something like that if they want to get in contact with you? Yeah, absolutely. So Making the Monster, um, it's, uh, it's, it's online basically in Facebook and Instagram. Haven't done Twitter yet, but uh, we're thinking about changing that. Um, but if you go to um, if you go to Facebook and just search for Making the Monster, it's it's a group and you can join that group or just simply, you know, watch the page. Um, we post videos, stills, um, you know, anything related to the crew. We're, we're really our niche in the Jaws online community is talking about what it took for everybody who worked on Jaws to make Jaws happen. Um, we don't pick apart scenes. We don't review things like other shark films. Um, you know, the Daily Jaws, for example, is a really great online publication that does talk sometimes about the crew, but it's more of the legacy of the film as a whole and how it impacts culture. We are, because of the docudrama, focused on the crew. Um, So you can go to Facebook and also on Instagram, instagram.com slash making the monster, all one word, all lowercase. I don't know if Instagram cares about the upper, upper, lower, lower thing, but uh, just keep it all lowercase and you'll be fine. Uh, So instagram.com slash making the monster. And it's pretty much the same content that the Facebook is. It always pushes from there to Facebook. So mm-hmm. you'll see most of the same content. But Instagram is great. Please come in. If you have any questions about things, you know, we try to be responsive. We're very busy right now, obviously, uh, getting ready for our Return to the Orca project to launch. And um, so uh, we will bear with us if you have any questions. But enjoy the sites and, uh, you know, take a look. We've been posting for a while. There's a couple hundred things up there. Um, some cool experiences, some photos you've never seen before. And just overall production stories about the making that maybe you haven't heard before about what it was like to work on Jaws. And I think you'll find some really cool stories that went behind the making of this film. 
Excellent. And guys, if you enjoyed this episode in any way, shape, or form, make sure you hit that thumbs up button down below. Like, share, comment, subscribe. Check out all the other great uh, podcasts of Realm of the Mist Entertainment. And of course, if you prefer your podcast in audio format, we've got you covered. Just look for Realm of the Mist Entertainment on Anchor.fm, Apple iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, iHeartRadio, wherever quality podcasts can be heard. Again, I want to thank my guest, Mr. Dave Bigelow. Again, I'm I'm putting I'm putting y'all notice when this when when Orca's in the water and when uh when making the monster is is in the can, I'm having you back. We got okay, well, more conversation. The Orca in the water and making getting making the monster in the can is that's a much farther off path. So let's get the boat in the water and we can talk over a couple of beers about, you know, what, what it looks like to to stare at her in the water now. <laughs> you know, we'll 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 definitely sit there and uh, sing farewell and I do to you dear Spanish ladies. I'm not right. going <laughs> to torture you guys. Uh, but thank you very much again. It's been an absolute pleasure. And guys, I will catch you on the next Breaking the Fourth Wall. Have a good night. Hey guys, it's Chris from Realm of the Mist Entertainment. If you enjoyed this video, please hit that thumbs up button. Like, share, comment, subscribe. Check out all the other great podcasts that can be found on Realm of the Mist Entertainment's YouTube channel or our sister channel, Sounds Dicey Gaming, for all your tabletop needs. And if you prefer your podcasts in audio-only format, check out Realm of the Mist Entertainment on Anchor.fm, Apple iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever quality podcasts can be heard. To our Patreon supporters, we thank you very, very much. And if you're interested in being a Patreon supporter, please go over to patreon.com slash realm of the mist and just a dollar a month gives you exclusive content and helps our channel out greatly. Guys, again, thank you very much for joining us and we will see you on the next episode.